Welcome to Conversatio, the Belmont Abbey College podcast. This podcast focuses on the way of formation and transformation so that each of us reflects God's image in an ever more palpable and transparent way. I'm Julia Long, and today I'm joined by Dr. Troy Fay, Associate Professor of History at Belmont Abbey College, and Dr. Daniel Hutchison, also Associate Professor of History at Belmont Abbey College. Uh, today we're going to talk about a topic that's really on the minds and hearts of a lot of people, as we know right now, um, and that is the conflict um, between Russia and Ukraine. So before we dig into that, um, I'm going to give Dr. Fay and Dr. Hutchinson an opportunity to introduce themselves to our audience. Dr. Fay, if you want to go first. Well, I'm Dr. Troy Fay. I have been a uh, I've been teaching here at Belmont Abbey since 2005. My area of specialization is modern French history, particularly French religious history, and I've worked uh, especially on the work of French Catholic missionaries in the French colonies in the Caribbean and West Africa. Uh, Hello, my name is Daniel Hutchinson. I've been a professor here at Belmont Abbey since 2011, also graduated from the college in 2002. Um, My teaching and research focuses on the... um, on World War II and the Cold War, and um, I'm excited to talk about the um, material for today. Great, thanks. So to set the stage for our audience, um, Dr. Fay and Dr. Hutchinson are really going to be kind of helping us dig into the role that re- that religious identity plays here um, between Russia and the Ukraine. So when we think about conflict, um, I think one of the things that we've been talking about is that it's conflict in its nature can be really personal. Um, and so the role of identity has really a big role to play there. So I think a really good place to kind of start out is by helping us understand our history. So how did where we come from get us to where we are today? So maybe um, let's kick off by just talking about the historical relationship between Russia and the Ukraine. Uh, my understanding is that this um, question would be answered very differently by someone who was um, in the camp of, of Putin or someone who was um, from the Ukraine. Um, but uh, I think that uh, from the Russian perspective, uh, from the perspective of Putin, he is trying to argue that um, the shared religious history of Ukraine and Russia, the fact that uh, I guess the first uh, Christian convert uh, came from an area that is today Ukraine, uh, and uh, has led to the the kind of the existence of the Russian Orthodox Church is right. the primary tie that binds uh, these two regions together. And despite the fact that we're talking about something that occurred in the very early medieval period, right. uh, this is now still an element that uh, that the Putin camp is emphasizing as a principal tie that binds these two regions together. Uh, the Ukrainians, for their part, um, as you might imagine, have have a different perspective. The Ukrainian Orthodox Church has its their own distinctive uh, religious leader, the religious uh, head, a patriarch, which over the last decade broke away from the larger Russian Orthodox Church, which was a major source of irritation and consternation um, geopolitically between the two. And I think this is one very important example, but one of many examples of, of Ukraine over the last 20, 30 years trying to build a sense of national identity and national independence. Right religion being an important way to do this. And um, the religious element of this has been a really important part of the conflict um, 
and it's in a sense split the um, orthodox religious world in many ways as it has sort of the larger Eastern European world. Do you think that in a sense then, since this religious, these religious beliefs didn't just pop up, they've been in both cultures for a very long time, in a sense, could we have seen this coming? Um, was this always kind of maybe something that was hanging out there, creating tension between the two countries? Or is this really, okay, the religious uh, ties are what they are, they were what they were, and this is kind of... Um, it's there, but it's not necessarily, it wasn't foreshadowing. I think the religious element is a symptom rather than a cause of some of the, the conflict that's, that's been expressed. Within the Russian and Eastern European tradition, going back to 17th century, there's a really close tie between church and state. In a sense, the church is controlled by the state, by the czar or right. um, by other prominent uh, leaders. And... Uh, they've worked closely together, and that's close. That's true in this conflict as well. The Russian Orthodox um, patriarch has really come out strong in support of the war and in support of um, the Russian perspective on this conflict. Um, as Ukraine, especially over the last decade, has tried to assert its, assert its national autonomy and independence, this has been one of the ways that it's able to do so, to say that we have our own distinctive religious sphere, right. distinctive religious practice. Um, but I think it's it's less a cause of the conflict than maybe a greater symptom. And yeah. and it's maybe worthy to note that Ukraine and Russia too is a um, big country with lots of different religious traditions, Orthodox being the primary one, but there's significant Catholic, uh, Jewish, Muslim um, faith communities, as well as um, uh, there's been substantial work in Ukraine over the last 30 years by Protestant evangelical communities there too. Yeah, and I think that, um, you know, in terms of, of um, cultural ties uh, and political differences between um, the Ukraine and, and Russia, language is often brought up as one of the things that unites uh, the, two, the two countries. However, they are not the same language. Uh, my understanding is that they are somewhat closer together than, say, French and Italian, uh, but not as close as Dutch and German. Uh, so there are linguistic similarities, and of course, the the further east you are in the Ukraine, the the greater those similarities are. Um, again, language like religion is one of these things that can be a cultural tie, but does not ne necessarily make you part of the same nation. Uh, United States and Canada, not the same country, uh, right? So, um, and there is a very different literary tradition that plays into some of these uh, religious differences as well. In that, uh, the Ukrainian religious literature is written in you know Ukrainian and not Russian. And in recent weeks, the language coming out of Russia is, in terms of their victory aims, is not merely the elimination of the uh, Ukrainian political regime, but a whole transformation of Ukrainian culture, the suppression of the Ukrainian language. Right. Um, and, and this has deep precedence going back into the 19th century. Russia, in its expansion as far as west as Poland, really made it a sort of central objective to russify the population to, in right. a sense to eliminate those distinctions of culture and language ethnicity and um, this is long remembered in those countries and I think um, coming out of this conflict there will be an even greater emphasis within Ukraine which as Dr. Faze mentioned uh, bilingual the languages are, are, are many of the citizens are bilingual and the, the languages are close together but coming forward, I think there's going to be a real emphasis within Ukraine on promoting Ukrainian language, Ukrainian right. literature, and um, as a way of promoting national identity. 
Yeah. Yeah, one of the things that just uh, comes to mind here as you're talking about this, something that may bring together some of these both linguistic and um, religious similarities and differences. I think the first um, the, the first convert uh, to Christianity, Prince, uh, well, uh, what's his name? Uh, in Russian, it's Vladimir, and All in right. Ukrainian, it's Volodymyr. So we have these two leaders now who right. are named after this same figure uh, who is both identified with both of their countries uh, and yet, you know, has slightly different uh, ways in which both the name and the and the figure are interpreted historically and in the present. What role did the fall of the Soviet Union play here? Um, you know, is is Putin looking back at a time like that and thinking, okay, that he needs to really work hard to secure his country identities here? You know, kind of what role does the fall play here in the minds of the leaders and even in the people? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're the you're the Cold War guy, so uh, you go ahead and. Grab that one. Uh, will do. Um, so the, the fall of the Soviet Union is a critical issue for setting all of these motions into play. When the Soviet Union collapses in 1992, the former composite states of that union each gained independence. Russia became the Russian Federation. Ukraine, the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic now became the independent nation of Ukraine. Right. Same across the board with uh, Eastern Europe and Central Asia. One of the things that came out of the dissolution of the of the USSR was Ukraine, Ukraine's efforts to secure peace and security. Mm. On its borders, it held the third largest nuclear arsenal in the world, although it did not necessarily have the means to deliver those nuclear weapons in, in conflict. But removing those weapons, securing those weapons, was a key goal of, um, of Western leaders. And so there was a, a political... Uh, not a treaty, but a political arrangement made called the Bucharest Agreement, in which the security of Ukraine would be guaranteed by Britain, the United States, and the Russian Federation if they gave up their nuclear weapons. They did. Apparently, this weekend was the 14th anniversary of that um, significant agreement. Mm -hmm. And Ukraine, in the years following, faced a lot of challenges that, that Russia did at the same time, converting into a free market economy, political corruption, the rise of oligarchs. Uh, Ukraine has had some significant challenges and setbacks on their road towards multi-party democracy, um, as well as a number of uh, sort of political revolutions. Mm. But their goal has been to tack towards the West, to embrace um, entry into the European Union, into alliances like NATO, and that has been their trajectory. Russia, since the rise of Vladimir Putin, Putin's called the collapse of the Soviet Union the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century. And he, in his speech in invading Ukraine, sought not just to reverse that historical moment, but he also called to the Russian Empire before the end of World War I and restoring its borders. So it's a pretty sweeping and dynamic set of um, different visions for these two countries. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think that... um you know, when uh, Putin was rising to power, obviously he had been a former KGB agent uh, and had come to power through the old Soviet system. Um, and uh, as he was taking over, I think he had principally economic goals in the beginning. Uh, the Russian economy had really collapsed uh, you know, at the end of the uh, 20th century and rebuilding that economy was, I think, the first order of the, uh, of the day. Uh, he did that by really turning Russia into uh, a commodity economy, basically right. oil and gas. Uh, which did um, 
bring Russia to, to greater economic prosperity, but also limits you know the, the, the products that it's relying on for that prosperity. Uh, once he achieved that, then I think he was able to turn to some of his longstanding goals of making Russia great again. Uh, and in his mind, that does, to some extent, um, mean rebuilding the old Russian empire. Right. But to get back to some of your earlier points, they're rebuilding a Russian sense of identity right. as a guardian of Eastern Christianity uh, and um, of a kind of uh, a mother country. I think sometimes the term he refers, he uses to refer to this is, is Russia as an arc of civilization in which it is protecting um, uh, traditional uh, Christian identities as well as as the sort of traditional place of Russia within um, within Eastern Europe. A couple of things that are interesting that have been raised here is you brought up the linguistic example earlier about how we have two leaders named after essentially maybe the same figure, right? But their names are, are different based on their understanding and their languages and their cultures. And then you're kind of referencing, okay, here's the fall of the Soviet Union and two countries that um, went through you know, a similar thing, a, a similar event in history at the same time and interpreted it and responded to it very differently. So when we look at those two things, that's really a part of identity too, right? Because it's something that happened, it's a response to something that happened that is then shaping the events of today. So when we look at cultural identity, there are leaders, right? And then there are the people. So let's take a little bit of a look at the people in this um, and how we think they might be affected. What are they thinking? I mean, could we say, or would we say even that, okay, because, you know, Russian people grew up in, in um, you know, with this sort of cultural belief about the things that happened, are they aligned behind Putin? Would we maybe say the same for Ukrainians? Are they unified behind Zelensky? There are a lot of, you know, comments out there about Ukraine being divided as a nation. Um, so I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts in, uh, about that. For Ukraine, Historically, there has been somewhat of a division between East and West, with West more inclined towards Ukrainian language, culture, and tradition, and the East more inclined towards Russian language, culture, and tradition. Mm -hmm. Vladimir Zelensky himself comes from the Eastern part of Ukraine and speaks fluent Russian as he does Ukrainian. Right. In some ways, Russian is his first language, not, not Ukrainian. Um, and those distinctions um, carried into other forms of, of sort of cultural life. And, and Ukraine suffered divisions like many countries um, divided on these lines do. I think one of the great questions concerning the current moment is, will the shared experience of war and invasion erase some of those divisions? And I think that's that's yeah. true. I've read some press coverage of Ukrainian citizens who rush, who speak Russian as a first language intentionally not speaking that language. Um, intentionally, um, both as a, sometimes as a measure of protection against you know, potent anger, but also right. that a sense of solidarity, that they, right. they wish to, to privilege their Ukrainian sense of identity first and foremost. And historically, war, um, for good and often ill, has been one of the forces that brings communities and nations together as a, as a shared identity. So Ukraine's had a rocky couple decades, um, but I think, I mean, it's difficult to know, but I think there's significant support within Ukraine towards this common effort of national defense. How people in Russia feel about it, that's a much, much tougher question, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, 
I believe that uh, there is uh, fairly broad, but also probably pretty shallow support for Putin across Russia. Uh, credit for restoring, you know, greater economic prosperity to to Russia, but of course, uh, you know, maybe some frustration with the, the increasing repression that has just, uh, you know, tripled and quadrupled over the course of this conflict. I think that um, the Russian government control of the media prevents the majority of ordinary Russian people from getting much of an honest account of what's actually going on. Uh, I know there were plenty of accounts of uh, of um, Ukrainians with family in Russia who couldn't get their families to believe mm -hmm. uh, what was actually happening to them uh, in the uh, in the Ukraine. Uh, will this, in the long run, increase or decrease support for Putin? Uh, probably, a lot of that will be determined by the economic consequences uh, of this, and if and when they start biting uh, into the prosperity of the uh, of the Russian people. Um, and also, I think the extent to which this um, gives Russian people the impression of of this increasing the the, the power and prestige of their nation or mm -hmm. decreasing it. Right. And I think at th this point, that's you know, still very much uh, up in the air. The um, Putin's popularity, such as it is, uh, shot up after the Russia's seizure of, of Crimea in 2014. Mm -hmm. It was seen as a sort of a big win for Russia, and Putin's popularity surged. But recent actions by the Russian state sort of, I think, demonstrate, as Dr. Faye's mentioned, maybe the sort of shallowness of possible support for this conflict. Uh, the the Russian parliament passed a law very reminiscent of the old Soviet Union under Stalin, criminalizing um, criminalizing news or statements about the mm -hmm. I don't want to say war because it's illegal to say war in Russia right. uh, a mil special military operation, fifteen years in jail is the penalty under oh. for under this. So posting something on social media, um, publishing something in a newspaper, even um, Russian police have been seizing people's cell phones off the streets to see what they have on there. Those sort of things can get you hit up with this uh, very, very punitive law. And as a result, many of Russia's best and brightest and most sort of connected globally um, in press and finance and other economic areas, they've simply let, fled the country. They've gone to other parts of the larger sort of um, Russian diaspora in different parts of um, Central Asia and Eastern Europe. And I think that speaks to something. If you need right. a law criminalizing speech by 15 years in prison, it shows, um, and, you, and you refuse to call it a war, I think that speaks a lot to the potential um, weakness of Russian support for this. But um, Russians do tend to pull together in common cause and when a conflict's going badly. So it's difficult yeah. to say. And I do think that that well, there's a couple of points that uh, that came to mind there. One was the idea of this uh, the the invasion of Crimea and the way that uh, Putin used that to uh, stoke the religious identity of Russia. A couple of things that were done immediately after that were creating a, a chapel for the Russian armed forces uh, to celebrate that victory. An Orthodox chapel. They're putting up statues of uh, of Vladimir uh, also to celebrate that moment of the first Christianization of Russia, and so that directly linked these military adventures uh, with uh, Orthodox identity with Ukraine, right. Right, all, all at once. Um, and then the other thing I think that, that, that Daniel's comments just brought up in my mind were um, the way this is now as a social media war right. and uh, how the, the Russian attempt to control the media 
of its own people is also limiting its ability to get any kind of message out to the rest of the world. Whereas in Ukraine, with its greater tendencies uh, toward toward the West, toward openness, uh, and toward the ability to use and uh, and and effectively use social media, I mean Zelensky is a is a master at uh, uh, getting message out and uh, and in, in such a way that it is uh, both heard and popular right uh, around the world. Um, so perhaps an example, you know, uh, of of a way in which um, social media is having a positive uh, effect for the Ukrainians, uh, and the Russian attempt to control it is, you know, failing. It's a pretty stark set of images. You have, particularly in the beginning of the war, Vladimir Zelensky on the streets with his people, right. using the skills that he has as a professional actor and comedian to to great effect. While Vladimir Putin meets with his um, his top ministers at a very long table away, away, long ways away, presumably protecting himself from COVID, but more than anything else, setting sort of a classic image of a man um, in a bubble in denial and not really in tune with the reality unfolding. Yeah, and I think one thing that's interesting about um, how we create culture and identity today is social media. One thing that it's done is it's allowed us to share our thoughts and opinions globally with people that we don't even know. Um, And you kind of see this phenomenon, especially with influencers on Instagram and TikTok, where they will create such a following that people across the globe will believe them and take their account, you know, as truth when they've never even met, you know, that kind of like, I need to know you and I need to have some sort of trust with you. Uh, that's different today in the way that we create culture and identity. And I think um, social media plays a big part in that. So I think that's interesting when you talk about the parallel between Russia and Ukraine and how their leaders have either used social media or not used it. Um, and I was thinking too, Dr. Hutchinson, when you were talking about kind of that it's a, I mean, it's a crime, or I guess we can't say that. Is that a word we can't say? I can't remember. <laughs> in a war is what we can't say, yeah. right? So that it's, it's a crime and that you could be put in jail for 15 years. I mean, you talk about creating culture and identity, right? I mean, that's a culture of fear in a way. Absolutely. And for their part, the, the Russian attempt to sort of brand the war in a social media friendly way has been through the adoption of this symbol of a Z, which they have posted on military um, vehicles, on social media, on buildings. They're trying to, in a sense, brand the war in a way to sort of bring the people together, but without calling it a war, uh, because the implications of that then um, are much greater for Russia's uh, politics and economy and And it'll be interesting to see how effective or ineffective these mediums are. I think, you know, one of the uh, one of the things that will be most interesting to follow as this continues is the way that this is realigning uh, European politics, global politics. I mean, the effect on on Germany, uh, I think, is profound. I think uh, China is watching this very carefully to see what uh, what happens here. Um, France is trying to fulfill a role as kind of diplomatic uh, intermediary here. <laughs> President of France, Macron, is using this uh, to bolster his own presidential campaign. Not sure it's quite working, but uh, <laughs> he's making the attempt to do that. So uh, totally, I think, uh, made Germany rethink not only its uh, energy dependence on, on Russia, but also its approach to its own military, uh, which could have uh, profound long-term consequences. Um, and, uh, and, you know, 
we uh, a few what 10 15 years ago a lot of people were referring to the BRIC nations Brazil mm. uh, Russia India China as the kind of rising uh, industrial powers um, and all of them have in their way gone fairly heavily toward authoritarian political systems uh, recently and uh, and I think we're seeing in Russia one of the consequences of that uh, and I think those other countries are all watching this very closely to see what this Russian move means for their own you know sort of global political future here just this last weekend, Hungary held a major an election um, to determine the leadership of their country. And uh, the campaign was hard fought before um, the events of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But Hungary shares a border with Ukraine and the dynamics of Ukrainian refugees and war on the border and whether they should participate in the sanctions, whether they should aid in weapons delivery to Ukraine became a major political issue in Hungary. And it appears that the the ruling leader of Hungary successfully used these political dynamics to his advantage to secure um, another uh, another term in office. So the reverberations from this event are going to be uh, pretty wide-sweeping for years to follow. Yeah, and I think that brings me to another point I was hoping we could cover, which is, you know, we've talked a bit about looking at this globally. Let's look at this at home. Um, so, you know, we've talked about the historical implications and the role of religion and identity. How would you say that this could translate to an American viewpoint when we're sitting here and we're watching this and we're thinking about, you know, some of our own landscapes and times that we've been through? Um, what do you think that the American people are, are, how are we responding to this and what's this like from our view? I think the conflict has reoriented American politics in some interesting ways, but only time will tell how profound those reorientations are. Um, I think that the conflict brought together the American people across political divides in sort of a unique and distinctive way that other crises of recent times have not. A lot of people drew inspiration by the heroic resistance of Ukraine to this invasion. Um, and. Um, measures in Congress to provide them aid sailed through with relative ease, although there still exists um, in both parties concerns either about America's engagement internationally abroad or on the size of uh, sort of defense spending within our domestic budget. Those issues remain. But I think the only time will tell if this is true, but I think the American political center on both the left and the right has been strengthened a bit by mm. the hard reality of Russia's invasion um, changing the geopolitical landscape. Again, time will tell, and we'll see how, how the war unfolds there. But I think that's one of the impacts that yeah. the war may have here. Yeah, I, I think that um, this is a, a good moment for Americans to rethink questions of identity that you were raising earlier. You know, there's a French philosopher, Ernest Renan, from the 19th century, big century for debating national identity and how uh, how you create it and where it comes from. Uh, and he said, uh, you know, a nation needs two things. It needs a, a, a kind of past consensus you know, on where we came from and what brought us together. And then you need uh, a current will to live together. Uh, and how do you bring both of those things together and maintain them? Uh, in this conflict, we can see Putin attempting to do one thing, uh, to use history in a particular way and an authoritarian model to, in a sense, mandate 
uh, a national identity through force. Uh, and in the Ukrainian example, you see uh, sort of coming together under force and pressure of the creation of, uh, of a national identity. Uh, and for Americans, it offers us a chance, I think, to think about, all right, well, what is our, our past consensus? What does that consist of? And, uh, and how do we you know, create that, live with that, continue that um, into the present? And, um, and I do think, as, as Daniel was just saying, you know, there's a lot of current contentions behind that. Uh, what sort of things you teach in history classes in school about the past consensus? Uh, what are the uh, political values that we must maintain right. in, the, in the present? And all that can be very divisive. But when you look at a conflict uh, like this one, uh, you can see the the consequences of um, I think doing two things: one, taking that too seriously, and taking it too lightly. Right. Uh, and uh, and uh, it gives us, I think, a motivation to find a, a balance. And we we can draw inspiration from what's happening in Ukraine. U- Ukraine has endured similar political and social and cultural divisions as we have here in the United States. But in the midst of this difficulty, those challenges have been put aside in the cause of sort of national unity and national victory. Now, God forbid we ever have to face a situation as terrible as that, but I think we can take some some inspiration for finding common cause, even with those who perhaps we share different values or perspectives with, if, you know. And I do think, uh, particularly in what uh, you know, the terrible atrocities have come to light in the last couple of days help to reinforce that idea. I mean, you've seen the the revulsion that has uh, taken place across Europe, across the United States, uh, to those sorts of things. The condemnation of that and the uh, the rejection of that as any sort of of path going forward. And I think that's you know uh, heartening as well, leading to uh, a return to the kind of shared values that would prevent anything like that from uh, ever being done. Yeah, so I think as we um, aim to bring this to a conclusion, I want to talk a little bit about goals. So we have two leaders here who are leading their countries in ways that hopefully they believe are the right way um, and both feel convicted to act in the way they're acting. Um, what would you say if you had an ultimate goal for each one, for, for Zelensky and for Putin, what would each's ultimate goal be um, and or what does a resolution look like? I think it's a difficult question, but a critical one. For Zelensky, I think, for whom the war seems to be at this current moment going favorably, even though it's incredibly costly for Ukraine, um, an end peace has to recognize Ukraine's um, national sovereignty, Mm -hmm. some degree of territorial integrity, although it may not get all of the bits of Ukraine that had been lost over the last decade and a half, but uh, a promise of some sort of security guarantee from not just the West, but maybe a partnership of other nations. Um, And ultimately, I think a pledge of of neutrality. I think that's going to be the biggest cost that Ukraine has to pay in order to um, make peace with Russia. And whether that neutrality means certainly, I think, no membership in NATO, possibly no membership in the European Union. These may be the difficult costs that Ukraine has to pay for survival. Um, and it's going to be the hard work at the negotiating table to figure out how far and how close it, Ukraine gains to its ultimate goals. Right. I think ultimately, at this point, it certainly appears that Putin's objectives are not going to be achieved. Uh, I think that uh, the, you know, 
there was a, a, a thought that this was going to be a quick and easy victory uh, and that you would have uh, perhaps uh, a Ukraine that still existed, but only as a sort of client state uh, to Russia. And uh, the, um, the solidification of the kind of, of orthodox, unified identity uh, hearkening back to the to the Russian Empire. I don't think any of that's going to happen now. And in right. fact, that cause may have been hurt uh, right. by by the failure to achieve that. Um, and so, I do think that that Putin will end up having to settle for uh, some of the exact things that that Daniel was talking about before. Perhaps a, a neutral Ukraine that is kept out of out of NATO and the European Union, uh, but that is still far more independent and far more powerful than Putin would have liked. I think one of the questions moving forward from many peace settlement is what place Russia takes it back into the international community. What circumstances will roll back sanctions? What circumstances would roll back um, the punitive measures on Russia's economy and technology and ports and things like that? And particularly, as Dr. Faye mentioned, after the atrocities uncovered over the last weekend, those sort of uh, measures are going to be much more difficult to proceed, especially right. when you have the president of the United States um, essentially calling for a war crimes trial for right. for Putin. Um, so that's going to be a challenging matter of diplomacy, although I think it's an entirely justified statement. But as a matter of diplomacy and international politics, it's going to be one of the, the big questions ahead. Yeah. And, I, and I want to say here at this point, because one of my other areas of, of interest and expertise is African history, that one of the long-term consequences of this conflict is going to be um, probably greater hunger in places like East Africa, especially that are already experiencing severe drought. They get a majority of their wheat and uh, and a lot of other things coming from places like Russia and the Ukraine, Ukraine known as Europe's breadbasket. Uh, and so um, this is going to make those those supplies much more difficult to get, much more expensive at places where people are already uh, in need and hungry. So. I think that's a, an important point, Dr. Fay, and one that's not being talked about a huge bit right now. And really, when we look at kind of the cultural landscape and different identities of countries and what we mean to one another, I think that's an important connection. So um, how is Christianity being used in the conflict by both sides? Well, I mean, but the, the, the first thing that comes to mind is, is not directly an answer to that question, but uh, is in a way the way uh, the Catholic Church has kind of uh, approached this the way the Pope has approached this, uh, and uh, and some of the comments that have been and and the the, the prayer and things that uh, uh, the Catholic Church has has engaged in, um, which again in some of the same ways that this conflict has bridged political divides, also has seemed to bridge some of the divides within right. the Catholic Church itself, uh, and uh, and that also seems to point to I think a, a greater hope in the future is that when when we are faced with real problems and real atrocities, uh, right. the, the Catholic Church can come together uh, as well in, in support and prayer about these issues. What will the faith landscape look like after this conflict ends? And that's another one of those where it's difficult to say, and, and, uh, but a lot of it, I think, uh, will have to do with this split in the Orthodox Church that uh, seems to be m becoming much, much worse as a result of this. Yeah. Uh, and um, as, as Daniel was talking about earlier, you already had an independent Ukrainian Orthodox Church that in the way that uh, the Orthodox Church is set up was under the, um, the primacy of, of Constantinople, I believe, uh, rather than Russia. Russia was wanting to get all of that back. 
that seems like um, that's unlikely uh, to happen. Um, so, you know, in terms of, of this being something that maybe brought the Catholic Church together, I would say this is something that is driving the Orthodox Church uh, further apart. This is probably a, a strained parallel, but um, once upon a time in the United States, there was a single Baptist congregation up, in, up until the years leading up to the American Civil War, when tensions over the issue of slavery fractured that congregation into the Southern Baptist uh, tradition as well as the remaining Baptist tradition. And of course, that division long, long since disappeared from the scene endures. And so I suspect that these religious divisions, um, which will be amplified by this conflict, will be around in a sense for a long, long time, which is which is tragic. But I think yeah. um, I think increasingly for Ukraine, their independent religious identity will play an important part of their um, larger national identity. And it, it's um, it's hard to see the uh, the re- the close relationship that Putin has built with the leadership of the Russian Orthodox Church uh, going away anytime mm-hmm. soon because of this. Probably the effect will be to to put those two even closer together. Putin has already. Right. Uh, pursued a very close relationship with the leadership of the Russian Orthodox Church, but uh, uh, I think they are they are you know going to be even more tightly um, connected after this. Well, I want to thank you both uh, for joining us today. It was it was um, fun, if you can say that, and definitely <laughs> enlightening. Um, I also want to thank our audience for joining us today. If you enjoyed Conversatio, please subscribe and tell your friends. Conversatio is available through Spotify and Apple and Google Podcasts. Until next time, God bless.